Welcome to the Center for Lit Podcast Network. You're listening to How to Eat an Elephant, a little book club for large books. Have you ever cast your eyes across a shelf full of classics and been driven screaming from the room by 500-page monsters with thick spines and important names? Then this is the show for you. We're here to take on these scary books together, because how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Hi, friends, and welcome back to How to Eat an Elephant, where one bite at a time, we are just, we have the strongest jaws. You know what I'm talking about? Like, we've been chewing. <laughs> there was going to be another. And chewing and chewing. It's never not gross. Here we are at a, at a thousand and nine, page one thousand and nine. This is a pretty good section. It's pretty fun. But before we, before we dive into it, I'd just like to share a little morning revelation with you both. Uh, I woke up this morning with the following song stuck in my head for <laughs> oh, no, no good reason. Are oh, you ready? He immediately put it into I'm my afraid. Head. What are you going to say? We are the grapes of wrath. <laughs> we <laughs> never take a bath. <laughs> we'll put a snake in your milkshake and never laugh. <laughs> This is just a little veggie tale. Little veggie tales. Did you not take a veggie tales? But it stuck in my head, and he only sung it once. Only one time. (laughs) It's an absolute earworm. Have you ever thought about how funny it is that for a whole generation of little Christian children, the only context they have for the phrase "the grapes of wrath" is that veggie tale song, in which actual little animatronic grapes dance around, laughing about how they're dirty. (laughs) No, no, they don't dance around. They're riding in a jalopy, oh, yeah, aren't they? I, I mean, they do actually. They hearken they back to the real grapes of wrath. Right. They're bouncing along in a jalopy oh. in a dust bowl. It is so funny. I just imagine being Phil Vischer and having that drop into your head and just going, "Oh, thank you, Jesus. This is going to be great." And the, all the parents are going to laugh so hard at this. Anyways, so awesome. <laughs> Well, I have a funny story from this morning. I went to do my reading because I was, uh, you know, a little behind the eight ball this week uh, and getting ready for this podcast. And I had a cup of coffee in one hand and then War and Peace in the other, which if you guys are at the stage of the book <laughs> that I am, which, of course, we all are, that's impossible. You have to read two handed. No, no. Yeah. And I almost covered myself <laughs> in coffee and I did drop War and Peace on my foot. Which hurts. <laughs> this book is big. 1,200 pages right to yeah. the big toe. Speaking of big toes, did anyone else find it super funny and kind of adorable that Pierre is just all into his dirty toes? Fat toes. He loves his feet. Oh, it's so funny. He's looking down at his feet, feeling glad of them. Oh, what a great yeah. section. So, Well, just interesting that Pierre is not fat anymore, we're told. But he still has fat toes. And he is still big. And strong. Yeah, he pushes nails into wood with his hands. Yeah, that was a strange flex, don't <laughs> weird you flex, think? Very weird flex. I'm not sure how that's supposed to be. I, I mean, maybe nails weren't little and tiny. You know, maybe we're talking about, you know, big old honking. Well, I think it'd be easier if they were little. Yeah, I don't think I could do it. I couldn't push a nail into a wall with my bare hands. So we come upon Pierre imprisoned. How does he feel about this? Friends. Well, he's having the time of his life now. <laughs> I love the tone of voice with which that was delivered. I mean, he's having the time of his life. I just thought it was funny that the way that this passage starts is actually not with a reference to Pierre, but a description of the dog. The dog being nameless and kind of without 
a breed even, but it doesn't bother it. It's it's satisfied to be exactly what it is without determination. That's and a great then it transitions from the dog to Pierre and he's feeling the same way about himself. That's good. I was going to ask you, where does this joy come from? I mean, I think there's a number of answers based on Tolstoy's uh, ever, ever developing philosophical theory about people. <laughs> yeah. But the connection to the dog actually makes it clear to me. Is it that is it that Pierre has lost all of the things that he once put stock in that it turns out were kind of making him miserable? And so now he's happy? Maybe. It seems to me like there's even the phrase, he he wasn't fat anymore. He no longer seemed fat, but he had the same look of massiveness and strength that was hereditary to his breed. So again, like a dog image, yeah. right? Yeah, He's totally. being exactly what by nature he is without overthinking it or borrowing from other beings or trying to project an identity for himself. He's just sort of, I don't know. He's just sort of trotting along. <laughs> yeah, there's no need to stick a label on it. I thought um, the description of the dog was really beautiful. Everything was an object of pleasure for it. Now yeah. it lolled on its back, squealing with joy. Now it warmed itself in the sun with a pensive and meaningful look. Now it frolicked, played with a wood chip or a straw. Just utter abandon. The, the dog does not care what breed it is. And I think that's a really apt metaphor for what Pierre has been trying to do thus far. He's been trying to label himself. What kind of breed is he? Uh, what is he for? What color is he? And now none of that has any meaning to him. And he can be free to just loll about in the sun. And the result is that the laxness uh, that he has been struggling with through the whole novel up to this point is gone. And the description reads that he's ready for action. And more than that, ready for resistance should the moment call for it. And that's something Pierre has never been capable of. That deterministic phrase, um, it had to be so, has governed every moment of his life. And now he's capable of resisting and asserting his will. This seems contradictory in a delightful way. Yeah. I So for me, the thing that stuck out was weather. I love the dog connection. Yeah. I think it's totally there and 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 I I dig it. But it was the weather that stuck out to me. Tolstoy spent some time describing the weather and the and the time of year. And, and it makes me think that part of what's going on here is a connectedness to the earth, to nature, Ooh, yeah. to being a creature instead of a mind. Because so much of what has afflicted Pierre is is this ceaseless ruminating in his head and the asking of questions and and all these philosophical things that he's that he is he's trying to sort out. And he mm -hmm. stopped doing that. And is instead, like the dog, playing in the sun and yeah. wiggling his toes in the dirt. And there's a lot of, of imagery that makes me think that man is happiest when he is, according to Tolstoy, connected to the land itself. He seems to be elevating peasanthood a little bit mm. here. Did you guys think that too? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. And he explicitly draws the connection back to the moment that we have been drawing a connection to when Pierre saw the soldiers and thought the simple life is best. The difference is that now he's a prisoner and he his life is limited and bound. And it just makes so much sense. I mean, I relate to this as a studious type. I idealize the times that I have been in school mm. and, and, and the less freedom I had, the better, right? I didn't have to think about what I was going to be or what I was going to do. It was prescripted for me and there was a schedule and a routine and I my, my cares and worries fit nicely into a limited box. And Tolstoy tells us it's when 
that box opens up and the whole world lies before you and you have to choose what you're going to do and who you're going to be and what that's when when we panic and become miserable. So it seems to me there's a little bit of a I don't know know exactly how to put it, but there's some complexity to the way he's presenting this to us. Because on the one hand, the things the things that have given Pierre this weird settled composure and joy have to do with the limitations that have been imposed on him. He's not free anymore to do whatever it is that he to be and to do whatever it is that he wants to be and to do. He is a prisoner. That identity has been handed to him and there's no way out of it. And so a sort of settledness comes with that. Meanwhile, he spends all of his time thinking about being free, thinking about the future. And and in his own mind, ultimate freedom will be the right to choose one's occupation of a day. But we're told a little bit later in the chapter that um, he looks back on these moments of imprisonment and that those moments were the ones that in which he felt composure and joy that goes away later when that freedom does drop into his life, when he is when he is later free to do whatever he wants, which is just, I mean, I think it's true for starters. Well, yeah, I think it reminds me of that John Donne poem, Batter My Heart, where he's speaking all in counterintuitive juxtapositions, in paradoxes, if you will. Right. He says, I'll never be free unless you unless you enthrall me. And he's speaking to the Lord and says, basically, I want to be a captive to you. That is where true freedom is. And he uses a lot of other paradoxes as well. But that one is kind of paramount in the poem. And I wonder if Tolstoy is going for the same big game here. The idea that um, that the very, um, I don't know, parameters put around you free you up to be satisfied with what you have. Yeah. And it seems to be a shot. And maybe he didn't know he was doing this. But from our vantage point now in 2022 in America, it's hard being a modern because we're told all the time that the sole right for invention and self-actualization is your own will and your own independence mind. Yeah. You basically we are little captains of of our fates who are being enjoined all the time by the people around us to make something of ourselves. And um, Tolstoy basically says, duh, not that way. Look, the product of that is anxiety and being irresolute, and you you can't actually pull that off. Where freedom comes is in, like you said, Megan, the constraints. Mm -hmm. Well, and the ultimate paradox in that same train of thought is that life comes out of death, right? That's the other, it's the deeper opposite that's kind of at the heart of it. And Pierre is realizing that as well. On the, the page previous to the passage you guys have been talking about, he says... Without thinking, he'd received that peace and harmony with himself only through the horror of death, through privation, and through what he had understood in Karatev. So because of the threat of death, he's enjoying his life for the first time ever. That's good. One of the questions I had was, is is Tolstoy presenting us with a theology of suffering here or with a theology of asceticism? That I, I guess how... How is this to be applied? Because it seems like there are several ways you can take this. I like the way, Megan, you're taking it to see the death and privation in our own lives as the avenues for freedom without seeking them out. The other way you could take it is to seek out the the privations. And for Tolstoy, maybe this means a return to a rigid class structure. I don't know. But I like what you're saying better. Well, I I would have guessed that of Tolstoy, that what you're saying, the asceticism and choosing that hard path, except that Pierre did try that before, and right, it actually yeah. didn't work. It didn't when work, his, right. 
when his effort was to deny himself and find some kind of self-sacrifice and actualize himself that way, it was ultimately unfulfilling. And maybe it seems to me what Tolstoy is emphasizing in this passage is the unselfconscious nature of Pierre's newfound peace. Right. He just sort of has stumbled into it, you know? As support for that, I'm going to read my favorite passage from today's readings. Pierre looked now at his bare feet, which he took pleasure in shifting into different positions, moving his dirty, fat, big toes. And each time he looked at his bare feet, a lively and self-satisfied smile passed over his face. The sight of those bare feet reminded him of all he had lived through and understood during that time, and he found that remembrance pleasant. <laughs> so cute. I, have, I actually know this feeling. It's from, it's from my school days as well. Um, I was visiting a dear friend who probably will never... Probably will never hear this, but uh, he and his brother and I had a mud fight. <laughs> we were in college, ladies and gentlemen. We had a mud fight. There was a big rainstorm, and his house was set up on a hill, and it was this long hill covered in little un- like wild onion stalks, and and it was the ground was soft enough, and there was so much water that you could you could run down the hill and slide on your belly all the way down to the bottom. <laughs> and we got we got as filthy as I've ever been at any time in my life. I mean, completely covered in mud. This sounds and amazing. It was it was one of the happiest, most joyful things I've ever gotten to do. It was totally unselfconscious, no concern for propriety of any kind, just a just a mud war. <laughs> and it was awesome. It's like a last gasp of childhood. Exactly. Your college days. Yep. Last gasp of childhood. Seems to me something similar is happening to Pierre here. But we should probably keep moving. So maybe because of this new attitude that he has, he's also developed relationships with all of the French soldiers that that are keeping them captive. And they all like him. I think he's a pretty good guy, right? They're offering him pipes and and he's he's never denied anything that he asks for, which is interesting. Maybe Tolstoy is commenting about the way life should go. One of my questions as I read this section was how much is this this scene, this pause in the militaristic scene, how much is that a commentary on Pierre and how much is it a commentary on the French soldiers and the effect that this this break in the action is having on them? Because we pretty quickly get a shift when there's a, a move to march again. There's an absolute change in the French ranks once again and that same feeling of forces outside of their control, making them tools in a larger machine and making them heartless again comes right back. But here in this pause, they are human beings again. And even Platon or whatever his name is says they have souls, right? I wondered if you guys thought, is that Pierre's effect on them? Or is it just that there's there's a break in the action? I don't know what you think, Emily, but I, I took it as as the effect of the great man theory of history on on the people that it's pushing around. As soon as the troops start moving, Napoleon and his his lieutenants are again trying to affect the course of world history, and everyone swept up in it has this negative effect because they're being pressed into a mold rather than allowing their humanity to flourish. So I, I connected it to that. I like that. During this time, everyone is quiet, and the soldiers, the French soldiers, are just as limited as the prisoners. There's no great action that's being forced on them and, so um, they can just be and life just grows Megan when you were talking it occurred to me that Platon actually is a mender of souls like like for shoes he spends his time during this little break of peace patching up 
the other prisoners' footwear. And in one point, he actually does soul, uh, um, sew a sole onto someone's shoe. Kar- Karatev. Yeah. Yeah, his first name is Platon, or they oh, call him. Oh, I, for- I forgot about names. that. One I was two. like, who are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, I just think that's really cool. I, I mm. bet that image is on purpose. I bet so, too. Yeah. Because there's the whole scene where the Frenchman is, um, he's asked Platon to make a shirt for him. And Platon wants to keep the extras to make all of the prisoners foot rags. And the French soldier's going to be really selfish about it. And then he's shamed into giving it to the prisoners because of what a great guy Platon is and because of the look Pierre gives him. It just occurred to me, though, that that's a wordplay in the English, but maybe not in the Russian. So maybe scratch that. I don't know. I mean, Tolstoy was a great reader of Shakespeare, so he might have also known what he was doing. I don't know. So, okay. So in in this... In the second chapter, um, <laughs> shocker, Tolstoy has just, in all the ways that we sussed out, given us this beautiful, understated, subtle demonstration in, store, in sort of a show instead of tell kind of way of what's happening in Pierre's heart. And then in the next <laughs> chapter, he goes ahead and tells us. Yep. <laughs> it's very specific and it's very long and not, not uninteresting. I mean, I think it's beautiful the way that it's described more or less all of the all the things that he has tried in his past to use to satisfy himself are thrown into sharp relief by the inexplicable satisfaction that he has now in captivity in suffering, yeah. but the part i really want to zoom in on is is the comparison between him and prince andre i was hoping oh, yeah. that you would do that especially yeah. since what follows the action the plot line that we're talking about is a return of the kind of impersonal, almost nihilistic force right. comes upon Pierre again. And so how is what he is experiencing any different than Andre's kind of hopeless wanderings? Yeah. Let me read let me read the passage and then and then I want to get your comments. So this is set into the middle of his his laughing reminiscence about all of the things he was concerned with, politics, killing Napoleon, the number of the beast, right? The, all these things oh, yeah. that he has occupied How ridiculous his, he's his mind with. Yeah, he's laughing at himself, even about his wife. Why did it matter to anyone, especially to him, whether whether or not they found out that their prisoner's name was Count Bezhikov or whether she was leading the life she liked somewhere and this is the first time we find out that that has a lot to do. His wrestling with that situation has a lot to do with his own self-image. Like he's never right. been explicit about that. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, for yeah. sure. And and furthermore, why he wants to keep his name secret from the French, that he's worried about reputation. That's interesting. So it, it says this. He now often recalled his conversation with Prince Andre and fully agreed with him. Only he understood Prince Andre's thoughts slightly differently. Prince Andre had thought and said that happiness can only be negative but had said it with a shade of bitterness and irony. It was as if, in saying it, he was voicing another thought, that all striving for positive happiness had been put into us solely in order to torment us without giving satisfaction. But Pierre acknowledged the correctness of it without any second thoughts. The absence of suffering, the satisfaction of one's needs, and the resulting freedom to choose one's occupation, that is, one's way of life, now seemed to Pierre the highest and most unquestionable human happiness. But, and then Nick goes on to say, he's actually happiest being captive. Yeah, a little later on, he forgot that a superflu... Su- super fl- oh dear. Superfluity. <laughs> oh man, all right, leave that in. Of life's <laughs> comforts destroys all the happiness of the satisfaction of one's needs. 
So too much of a good thing is harmful. Yeah, that a greater freedom to choose one's occupation, the freedom which in this life was granted him by education, wealth, social position, precisely that freedom made the choice of an occupation insolubly difficult <laughs> and destroyed the very need and possibility of an occupation at all. <laughs> okay, so this is actually kind of complex because what Pierre is recognizing in Andre is Andre looking around, striving for the very same things that Pierre was striving for. And Andre's conclusion was, this desire to make myself better has been put in me to, to me. torture me. Yeah, And Pierre agrees with him but differently. And it isn't that oh man, he sees the, the via negativa, right? That, mm -hmm. that um, being tormented by this desire is actually what is bringing him joy, but he's still looking outside and wanting to have freedom. It, it's not that he has that desire to, to do something with his hands. He's not rejecting that which is, I don't know, that that's, I'm not sure how to take that. Well, and it's not, that, it's not that some grand conversion has taken place and Pierre's now a different person who's wiser. We're given to believe that these things come upon him and that there's a season for them and then they pass because he still is concerned with his own image. That's still the thing motivating it under the surface, right? Because at the end of this chapter, we get an account of his moral constitution um, and the fact that all of the prisoners regard him, all of his comrades regard him highly, and that the things that used to make him a social outcast now make him kind of a mysterious god to all of his buddies. Yes. And it says this obliges him, right? This, the yeah, idea that he's, that. <laughs> that, he is some, that he's somehow above the common fray, right. that's a position he, he thinks uh, feels pretty good. <laughs> yeah, we like felt, that. But this view obliged him. <laughs> <laughs> so he's still a delightful mess of a person, but... But I, I think we are supposed to take his circumstances as a great blessing, sorting out something that he's been searching for in vain by himself. Yeah, but again, I think the most beautiful part about this is that it, it came upon him. This, this time of captivity is a gift to him, and he has been trying to reach this point himself by all means possible, even by the very means that he is pr practicing right now. He's tried to do this to himself. We've said it before, but I just, it's so beautiful that he couldn't do it himself. It had to come upon him. Yeah. Yeah. One wonders if Tolstoy is saying this is the only way it goes. Which means to connect this back to Tolstoy's larger theory of history, that there is, there does seem to be an ordering factor in the events of history. It's just not us, but that doesn't right. mean that there isn't someone working for our good, even our individual good. Agreed. Yeah, I think you're right. Which is the only nod, well, not the only nod in the whole story, but the only nod in this section to any kind of spirituality. I think it's interesting how earthy and um, not logistical or technical, but concrete Pierre's joy is. It's not an ethereal, spiritual experience that he's having. It's an experience of rubbing his toes in the dirt and and playing with a captive dog and stuff. I mean like it's it's very, very human. And I think that's interesting to me. Right. But there's this overall acknowledgement that happiness is something given to him yeah. from outside, right? Yeah, and somewhat ineffable. Yeah. It it was it was put into him from somewhere else and he's just enjoying it. I think that's that's beautiful, and that is spiritual at its heart. But he experiences it altogether in the physical sense, rather than even 
like rather than rationally. Right. That's kind of what I'm trying to say is that Tolstoy isn't telling us this is a spiritual moment. Right. No. And Pierre isn't saying I'm having a spiritual moment. <laughs> really what's happening is he's just experiencing. And that experience comes to him through very, very human means, not through the agency of his of his divinely ordained will, not through the brilliance of his philosophical Intellect, uh, acuity, yeah. right? None of those things. It actually is his dirty toes in the dirt. That's what. That's the, the means by which he's receiving this given thing. Yeah, I see what you mean. And I think that's, man, we need some of that. Again, with the shots at modernity that, that Tolstoy is taking, maybe even without knowing it, it depends on, and I suppose we lead a, a life of, we work from home on our computers most of the time. Uh, we're, we're disconnected in a way that Tolstoy would probably find um, not helpful for us. We're disconnected from the land and the earth and the people around us. And so, so I look at it and I'm kind of envious, not of privation and captivity, but of no. the chance to sit in the sun and wrinkle my toes in the dirt, you know? Yeah. So we move from there into that feeling coming back. And Emily's already pretty aptly summarized that, right? The idea of the train starts to move and everyone is cold and hard and... What, is, what does he call it? The thing that causes people to kill or something like that? Yeah, that indifferent force that made people kill their own kind against their will. And a little bit later, to turn with requests and admonitions to the people who served as tools was useless. So all of a sudden, they're no longer souls, they're tools in a larger machine. That machine image comes up a couple different times in this passage. And this is one of the more heartless ones, but it'll circle back and he will, I think you'll connect it to the great man theory once again. With a wood chip and a machine. But is I don't think that Pierre is still connecting this impersonal force with being the final, like the end all be all, right? Before his captivity, he saw this impersonal force and he basically said, this is it. This is the highest power and everything is meaningless because of that. But in this moment, he's able to retreat from it recognize that he can't fix it and so therefore his, his own power has limited been limited even more and he's able to withdraw within those narrowed limitations of himself and his own power and see that there's something there's a deeper something and he uh, at the end of the chapter he looks at the at the heavens and identifies himself with that and says, how can they possibly try to capture this? This is me. I am this. And they're trying to hold everything, the world, the universe inside of these walls. Which is of course impossible, right? The implication is they can't do that. I'm, I'm free now because I'm a part of all of these things. But the end all be all is now the everything, right? It's now mm -hmm. the heavens. It's now Pierre and his, his encompassing of all of that yeah, that allows him to withstand this impersonal force. Absolutely. And it, it like you, this all does connect as Megan said, it would back to the great man theory again, because the Napoleons of the world consider themselves more highly than they ought in Tolstoy's mind, right? Your, your little tiny self can't really affect the course of all of this um, because it's spinning along with or without you. And, and I think, Pierre's encompassing of all of this shouldn't be seen as analogous to considering himself more highly, more highly than he ought. I think he's, I think he's feeling a sense of membership that can't be stolen from him, 
in the created order. Is that what you would say, Megan? Yeah, I found a little a little um, summary sentence. He felt how, as the fatal force made efforts to crush him, a force of life independent of it arose and grew stronger in his soul. So his very, I like what you said, his membership in this larger existence is it's it can't be crushed. And so he just sits there and enjoys it and is not afraid or cowed as he was when he considered himself an independent entity. Now he's part of something bigger and there's a strength in it that rises in his soul and won't be crushed. This seems much more hopeful than what Tolstoy has said in the past, which is, oh, you little humans, you're so much smaller than you think, which is true. And he's still saying that. But if you leave it there, then it's just kind of sad. Mm -hmm. You're meaningless little ants on the face of the earth. But here he seems to be saying, no, no, it's that you're so much bigger than you think you are. Napoleon's problem is that he he he's not um, seeing how very vast he actually is. If he's got a glimpse of that, he wouldn't be trying to force the issue. There would be no need to his own agenda. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I I I understand what you're saying. I think I agree. I mean, I would maybe just phrase it a little bit differently because because um, there's a line that says Pierre did not see people separately but saw their movement. Oh yeah, I saw that too. Mm-hmm. Which I thought was a curious line. And the more I think about it, the more I think he's he's aiming at this at this paradox that we're sorting through right now. It is only in your participation in the created order, in your membership in something bigger than yourself, that you are vast and valuable. And it isn't that Napoleon is vast. Actually, he is tiny, an ant on the face of the earth. And the only um, happiness, compassion, rightness that he's going to find is in acknowledging that membership in something bigger than himself. And I think that's what that, it, that seems to be what Pierre is, is feeling here at the end. Yeah, I think that's really well put. He goes, I think if you don't mind, this image is towards the end of our section for today, but I think it connects so perfectly. Well, we're he also goes, more or less there. I want to get in chapter 15 here in a minute anyway. So yeah, I mean, I know we can talk plot here in a minute, but he circles back to this idea of a machine And I'm just going to read this little passage. Uh, Tolstoy says, To a man who does not understand the workings of a machine, it naturally seems, when he sees it in operation, that the most important part of the machine is a chip of wood that accidentally got into it and is tossed about in it, interfering with its working. A man who does not know the construction of the machine cannot understand that it's not this harmful and interfering chip of wood, but that little transmission gear turning noiselessly that is one of the most essential parts of the machine. And in context of the larger passage there, he is drawing a connection between Napoleon, this great man, and this chip of wood that is inconsequential, harmful at best, and interfering. And, and actually the most important part of being, uh, you know, being part of this moving whole, this great well-oiled machine, is to be just a part of the whole, to not, not assert yourself against the grain, if that right. makes sense. Yeah. Interesting that he's still using the imagery of machinery to make this description. Only this time, he, instead of identifying Napoleon as the machine itself, he is saying, no, no, there's, there's a better machine, right? There's, he's, it, he's casting it in a positive light this time and saying Napoleon isn't even really part of that machinery. He's a wood chip. Yeah. He's a wood chip. (laughs) Well, I think it's funny. I just caught myself because there's the dog at the beginning of our passage for today. He's seen as playing in the sunlight with a wood chip. 
Hmm. And here we've got Napoleon as a wood chip and Pierre as this happy puppy. And I don't know, all of that together (laughs) makes me feel like it's all going to be okay. Even though Pierre is headed on the road to, to ruin when we leave him today. I mean, he's basically, he's got to keep walking or they'll shoot him. He's never been in a position quite as dire as he is right now. And yet all the imagery leads me to believe he's going to be just fine. Yeah. The, the, to suss out the image you just gave, the uh, conclusion would be that Napoleon or the, the greater French army is not playing with Pierre. Pierre is actually playing with them, which is, an interesting inversion. It is. Well, and the, the playful spirit, I think, is um, carried through by how many times Pierre is just laughing. He's sitting by himself away from the crowd, just laughing at how how inscrutable the situation is and how at peace he feels and how he is vast in his soul and they can't possibly keep him captive, you know? So I just want to take you guys on a little journey. I want you to imagine Tolstoy. I don't know how old he was when he wrote War and Peace, but in my mind, he's he's old. Yeah, he's got gray hair and he's a know. million. And he's sitting there just ranting his brains out and trying to prove his his historical point over and over again. And and the, and the passages that have to do with his characters sort of come upon him, you know, given things right. And then he's like, "Oh, that was weird." Back to my theory of history. <laughs> and he, and as he's sitting there poring over the scrolls and and trying to sort out scrolls. what actually happened the here, and just hang with me he's, right. as he's trying to sort out what actually happened here in the history, he comes across this name, Doctor Off, <laughs> and he goes, "Where's who is this Doctor Off guy?" And then he realizes as he researches, his eyes get bigger and bigger, and the excitement builds and builds. He realizes that this guy was present at every meaningful engagement throughout this entire war and gets no credit for it. And he goes, yes, it's true. I tell you, it's true. <laughs> and then he he decides, this is it. This is my magnum opus. I'm going to write the story of Doctorov. How does this connect to his great man theory of history? What do you guys think? I mean, I just laughed my way through this whole part. It's so funny. Like, I just, the joy that must have been present in his soul. He's like, ha, I got gotcha. you. I got you all. Here's this little little guy that doesn't ever get any house, that's never called a hero, who was meanwhile the linchpin of the Russian efforts to do everything. Yeah, I did. I wondered how he found this guy. <laughs> Go ahead, Megan. It just seems like this guy personifies Tolstoy's theory that when history calls someone, you know, irresolute and imperceptive, we can assume he might have been the opposite. I mean, it's Tolstoy blatantly bashing historians Historians. (laughs) yeah i know seriously it wasn't totally true (laughs) Mm -mm, no subtle is not one of the words i would use to describe leo we're on a first name basis now a thousand pages in at the end he goes many heroes have been described for us in verse and po and prose but there is hardly a word about doctor of you (laughs) idiots (laughs) right exactly now there is, though. That's yeah. ir- ironically, now there is. This is the yeah. irony I've been pointing to the whole novel. And so by some measure, when he says Tolstoy the silence. The problem. Well, yeah, the silence in the history books, he says, the silence about Dr. Off is the most obvious proof of his merit. Uh-oh. No longer. <laughs> you killed it, Tolstoy. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Well, I think we're going to get more from Dr. Ruff in our next section because because so far we have the accounts of his successful engagements that were totally accidental. I mean, it's bit, he did, here's the other thing. He doesn't do Dr. Ruff personally any favors either. 
because he's so intent on proving that nobody has anything to do with the course of history except the person ordering it from above, right? And everyone's just playing their small part. They don't even know what that part is. They just kind of stumble into it. He makes Dr. Ob sound like Mr. Bean. I mean, it's literally Mr. Bean <laughs> winning <laughs> winning battles for the Russians. You know what I mean? Yeah. Whoa, whoa, whoa. He's making funny faces and just kind of shows up and goes, I'll be the entire French <laughs> army is here. What's a man to do? Like it's, he comes yeah. off sounding like kind of an idiot. But I do think he's going to be important because we know we are approaching the final large engagement of this war. And we also know, because we live hundreds of years later, that the French lose and are booted unceremoniously out of Russia. So presumably Dokhtarov's about to be really important. And I can't wait to see if Tolstoy decides eventually to say, okay, but there was something great about this this one guy. Most great men are are total puff pieces by a bunch of lame historians. But the one that I have chosen, he's an important man, a truly important man. Or if he's going to stick to his guns. I'm interested to see. Can I offer one last thought? I've been sitting over here just kind of chewing on Pierre's laughter. And I think this is actually something that I have been thinking about in other contexts on and off. And it's it's the laughter of the absurd, right? The fact that they have captured him and he is vast. And in modern thought, that is a very... Uh, it's like the last gasp of trying to maintain one's dignity, the asserting one's laugh in the face of, of darkness. And it can be very nihilistic. Mm-hmm. But I think Pierre's laughter here is actually extremely Christian. And it's uh, it's why, it, I don't know, this is my sense of humor, right? Laughing in the face yeah. of, of da- our darkness is basically my sense of humor. Can confirm. Um, darkness <laughs> is my face, is my sense of humor. <laughs> But uh, here it's because it's like a laugh of triumph and the absurd is funny because it's so it's not the absurd can't beat him. It has no claim on him. It's just funny that it's trying. And I think that's really beautiful. It reminds me of um, something our professor used to say, a professor of ours used to say um, mostly when teaching Dostoevsky, but this idea of bowing in the face of the absurd. Do you remember that? Yeah. Can I tell the story? Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, I'll be yeah, gentle. Okay. <laughs> so we're all in class with this professor who's who's total rock star. He's 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 over his first couple of years as a prof and is just really at the height of his powers. And everybody on campus wants to take classes from him. And so it's a large classroom full of people. And he comes in and just starts talking, as was his habit. Didn't really do any didn't really do any like introductions for the day or anything like that. He would just walk in and go, okay, and then start okay. talking. And um and as he's talking, he reaches behind him without looking, and he rolls back this. We had these rolling uh, dry erase boards, behind which was a chalkboard. He liked to use the real chalk. And so he went and he rolled it back, and someone had drawn on that board oh, no. some man parts, I think is oh, what we'll call no. them. And so he's talking, and he still hasn't looked at the board. We're, and, we're reading the Brothers <laughs> K. Right? Yeah, every, we're reading Brothers <laughs> K, and everybody's eyes just go everybody goes white as a sheet and the eyes get all big and one of my friends goes no (laughs) and he goes what and the professor turns and he sees this on the board and he just goes it's perfect we bow we bow to the absurdity we bow to the absurdity (laughs) oh my god it's so funny it might interest you to know this is actually one of two times 
that a professor of mine in college encountered okay okay <laughs> that on a on a board that college kids are so messed up <laughs> well this is another second time he drew it himself by accident what we were reading we were reading child roland to the dark tower came and there's a prominent feature of that poem is that there are two hills and then a tower between them and so he just drew it himself and then realized what he had done <laughs> oh no <laughs> it, was, it was really funny Anyways, Emily, you were making a point. I hijacked it. <laughs> uh, instead of bowing in the face of the absurd, Pierre laughs in mm-hmm. the face of the absurd. And I think that I identify with that more. I love it. I think it's a beautiful point. The Russians are, are on about this, though, right? I mean, Tolstoy's not the only one. Dostoevsky spends a lot of time with the similar idea. The absurd is really important to them. Maybe it's because for whatever reason the lord chose to plant them in a siberian wasteland of a country (laughs) it's just a sign of how little control we have right well yeah i that was my thought is that actually it's it's another articulation of a paradox which is actually thematically one of the one of the things he's getting at you know the absurd fits right in it's it's not what you think it's ironic you know right yeah well you guys this was such fun Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and thank you for being such sharp readers. I don't know if I could have made it all the way through this book. I think I would have given up. Oh, I don't know. Between 250 and 500 pages ago, I think I probably would have given up. (laughs) So your companionship is so important to me. And thank you listeners for joining us today as well. Megan. Are we going to finish before, you know, the end of the year again? (laughs) (laughs) Do we have a projected schedule that we can like see the end of? I'm starting yeah. to feel like everything, like the athlete in me is starting to feel like I want to mark the miles, you know? <laughs> <laughs> there is. It's on the website. I think it's in June. We're going to have to have some kind of party when we finish. Oh, there's got to be champ. No, <laughs> not champ. Champy champ. It's no, not be vodka. Champ. Yes. Vodka. <laughs> it's going to be vodka is what it's going to be. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll post pictures. <laughs> Or maybe we can find some way to invite the listeners. I don't know. That'd be so fun. You guys, we want to meet you. I'm so into that. Well, if any of you listeners just think to yourself, man, what I want to do on June the 1st is fly to Spokane, Washington and hang out with the Howdy Eat an Elephant folks. Drink some white Russians with the elephants. Get in in touch with us (laughs) and we will make some white Russians. Are we the elephants? In the end, are we going to be elephants? No, the elephant is the book. No, we're the right. chewers. We're the biters. We're Gross. biting. Ew, it's getting worse. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. You two go off and have a day. Thank you listeners for joining us. As always, please hop on Facebook and get into the old, the old how to eat an elephant group where we all um, continue to, uh, we continue to chew throughout the week. <laughs> Anyways, until next time, my friends, bon appetit. Bon appetit. Bon appetit. Want to follow along with our reading? You can find a link to the schedule in the show notes for this episode. How to Eat an Elephant is a part of the Center for Lit podcast network. Visit our website at www.centerforlit.com to find our other literary shows, resources, and our membership program, The Pelican Society, where you can get access to a variety of live discussion groups. You can also find us on most social media channels. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, happy reading.